This is a very special episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast because I have a, uh, a good friend of mine as the guest. He's my MTC companion and uh, now my friend. Since Are we then. friends? Yeah, we're friends. Okay. I take yeah. credit for yeah. a lot of your thoughts and stuff, so I guess that makes sense. Mentor, friends. you know, whatever. <laughs> so this is Clint Hossman joining me from his uh, office in Arizona. At, uh, at He's the mothership of the Longship Systems Company. That's right. Uh, he's he's the head owner of that, but uh, beyond my wife, the only owner. So yeah. <laughs> we're releasing this episode on Thanksgiving Day, and part of why I wanted to have Clint on as my guest is because we were not only MTC companions and stayed in contact throughout our missions and since, but uh, we came home on Thanksgiving Day 19 years yeah. ago. We're getting That's, old, man. I know. Yeah, I turned. Well, have you turned 40 yet? Yeah. 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 It's an odd time, right? Like this whole 40, late 30s, early 40s thing? Yeah. It's it's kind of that period of time where you forget that you're young mm. until your knees hurt. And then... Well, yeah. <laughs> it, it Well, it's crazy. And we were talking about, uh, before we got rolling, about the transitionary state. Um, you know, because 19 years ago to uh, Thursday, we came home. Yeah. Right? It's a transitionary point between mission and home. And I really feel like this midlife crisis time frame yeah. is a, a big transitionary point as well. You're, you're getting the big sports car? No, you got a big truck. I do have a big truck. Uh, mostly my midlife crisis has been channeled into starting my own business and all of the anxiety and emotional drama that you create for yourself wrapped up in that. Yeah. Well, let's jump back a little bit. Let's jump back about yeah. 21 years to when we were in the MTC and... Uh, what was your experience entering the MTC? Do you even remember the first day that we kind of uh, were there and, and met up and, and all no, that? No, you could probably tell me just about anything, and I'd probably say it was right. I don't remember <laughs> a lot about it. I remember I didn't like it at all. Really? What what, what didn't I, you like? Uh, just the confinement. I was, I mean, I guess I, I take for granted that you know my backstory. And growing up, I'd worked at a wilderness youth rehabilitation program in Arizona called Anasazi. And so from 15 years old on until I went on my mission there, most of my life was spent outside hiking and, you know, exploring in the mountains of Arizona. And to be cooped up in a MTC for a month. Yeah. That's that different. was ugly. Yeah. It was totally different. That was, uh, it was, and it was really, winter time. You didn't even really want to get out. Right. It was dark. Uh, it's Utah. It's not Arizona. It's cold. It's not Arizona. Um, and so I enjoyed the the people that I was there with, like yeah. you and Brian McLaughlin and Kai Tanner. Like, love you guys. The The environment I found difficult. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was funny, too. I remember that part of learning about, you know, MTC companions. They very quickly have to kind of learn how to get along with someone that they're completely foreign with. And in your case, I remember your scriptures, particularly yeah. your scripture case that just smelled like a campfire from all your being out in the wilderness and stuff. That's right. Well, and not only from being out in the wilderness, I'd, it was made out of deer skin that I tanned myself. I remember that. Yeah. So um, if that if it doesn't get weird from there, I don't know where <laughs> where it does get weird. But yeah, so it, the that transition into the MTC was tough, Yeah. but totally good. There's As I've gone through and... I'm sure everybody gets on here and says they read their scriptures, right? Um, 
But as I've grown in my understanding of the scripture and expanded things out a little bit, you begin to identify transitionary points in the path of, of a man. And that 19, 18, early 20-year-old time frame is it's very black and white. Everything is very black and white, and you need a solid leader that you have to get behind. Yeah. Right. There is no gray. There is no gray to anything. And so that structure is something that I desperately needed and that every young man needs at that point in their life of, no, sit down, listen, here's your food, get <laughs> trained up, get ready, right? Yeah. And uh, I think you and I were fortunate enough to have probably one of the best mission presidents out there for young men, Rodney Tuller. Yeah. Where he just totally took us under our under his wing and was the quintessential coach for us. It, because he was a coach. He was an athletic he was director. A coach. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he and get, so it, get in there easy and, transition. Yeah. So as far as uh, your your MTC experience to go further with that, being such an athletic person and being very outdoorsy and all that, the sitting down all the live long day, that's that's even hard for someone like me that was you know that had a mix. But how did you uh, how did you cope with that? Uh, do you even remember the whole sitting down all all day long in class? I had uh, it was the first time I'd had consistent meals. In probably five years. You mean on time, like on schedule? On schedule, not because my parents didn't feed me and I was raised poor or anything, (laughs) uh, but because of just the way I did. And if you don't remember, is it appropriate to talk about fart stuff on an LDS? Yeah, yeah, go for it. We love it. Remember how bad my gas was? Dude, everybody had gas. It was the OTC. Mine was horrendous. I gained 20 pounds, Nick. (laughs) But you you were a stick thin guy. I know. You couldn't even see it. I know that's ridiculous. that's how starved I was when I went in there. <laughs> we actually used to make jokes because you would talk about eating scorpions all the time. I know, and it still carries over. I do it today and scare my children. With it. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> you got to have a couple of power moves, not only for your children but for everybody else. Eating a <laughs> to scorpion freak, to freak people out. That's how you do your yeah. business negotiating. That's right. I establish dominance through weird food. <laughs> All right. So do you remember your transition then from the MTC into our time in Louisiana? What was your impression? I think it was like around January 6th, early January, first week of January. January. That's an interesting time to be in Louisiana. Well, it's it's always an interesting time to be in Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wait, remember? Yeah, I remember it. But from what I was just happy to be outside again, number one. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. they, like from what vantage point? Because the the story that I always tell everybody, and it's accurate, it's not just makeup, make believe, is uh, the first door I knocked on with my trainer, Elder Merrill. Guy answered the door and he says, "Yeah, Mormons, I don't believe in your church." And I said, "Oh yeah, why? Why don't you believe in our church?" And he goes, "Joseph Smith had twenty seven wives." And I was all, "Huh?" I looked at like. <laughs> I kind of glancingly looked at my companion, and in my head, I'm all, Joseph Smith had 27 wives? (laughs) Like, I guess I'd kind of heard that, but it's in, I think you can vouch for this. It seemed like every other door you knocked on in Louisiana, somebody was a preacher, pastor, deacon, minister of something. And had a very interesting claim against us at the same time. Right, right. I mean, they all kind of boiled down into the same 10 or so claims, but... One thing that I'm incredibly grateful for and the call that I received is that I learned how to defend the faith, 
not that defending the faith is something that needs not like JC needs any defense. He he stands on his own, right? <laughs> but learning solid arguments, like scriptural arguments for why. So that from that moment on, I'm like, huh, hold on. I don't like getting caught out with things that I don't know. And so that moment really, I had a spiritual conversion. I definitely had a spiritual conversion when I went into the MTC. It was founded on uh, reading of the Book of Mormon and being outside a lot. And just felt the spirit yeah. uh, to the structure of the church, to Joseph Smith. It kind of like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I get it. But the minute that I was exposed to something culturally or administratively that I didn't really understand, it shake my testimony would be the wrong word. It pushed me to go, okay, hold on. Uh, that's That conversation's not happening again. Gotcha. And really dig into it, right? Yeah. Which is interesting, uh, as you and I know, uh, friends that we've had from our mission over the last decade, like, you know, making their pronouncements as they leave the church on Facebook about, uh, literally, we had one that we both know say something about, nobody ever told me that Joseph Smith had multiple wives. And I'm like, like you, it happened bro, weekly. We, we live got... in the same place. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Nobody's pulling the wool over your eyes on this one. I'm sorry that you didn't listen to the people you were teaching who brought up that concern because it literally happened once a week. Right. All the time. Between polygamy and blacks not receiving the priesthood, like in Louisiana, buckle big up. Big deal. Big deal. Yeah. And of course, and they are big deals. They should be big deals. Uh, a lot of so much of our society is structured upon the singularity of marriage and and it's people have questions and just because they have questions doesn't mean that they're wrong it's not wrong to have the question right and yeah. for me it wasn't that i tried to dug in to try and convert somebody factually that that was never going to happen for me it was important to study those things out and learn it from a secular standpoint so that I could understand it better. Just so my understanding, like I was willing yeah. to play along and go like, okay, I'll, I'll follow because of the foundation that I had and the feelings of the spirit. Yeah. Right. And I'll, I'll give it, give it some time to kind of flesh out. So that, but yeah, that was my first, uh, first, Your first door. Yeah. First I, door. My, my first door was uh, a polygamist that was really? uh, claimed to be an inactive member of the church. How did we never cover this? It was in Pride. You followed me in that area, too. Uh, I did. Um, Wait. We'll have to give the name afterwards, because I don't want yeah, to, uh, yeah. to bring that up. But uh, yeah, yeah, my very first day, very first door. It was, oh. uh, it was a polygamist that uh, wasn't active in the church, obviously. And uh, was looking Well, not for- obviously. Well, I've, found, I've okay. found a few, right, <laughs> that are, you know, they're sneaking in there. Uh, <laughs> well, they, they need, ended up needing some welfare help, and... Uh, so he said, well, we, there's a couple reasons now that you need to talk to the bishop. <laughs> so, Hilarious. So we made that happen. But yeah, first door approaches, man, that could be, there's some fun stories there because it, it probably shocks you no matter what the response is. Even if yeah. it's someone that goes, yeah, let's come in. I'm ready to be baptized. That's still going to leave a mark. Your first door it, approach always has that impact. Well, and I think that's why the, you know, you have the up there in Utah, I'll talk talk trash about Utah. Everybody's in with their MLMs or pest control uh, companies. Security companies they, too. We, we security. Have, yes. Yeah. Security is like the new pineapples. Everybody in the seventies uh, recruited return missionaries to go work the pineapple fields <laughs> in Hawaii. And they're like, it's awesome. You'll have a great time. It's Hawaii. Everybody loves it. And it turns out you're just getting tore up by pineapples. Uh, 
that that skill set of being able to approach and have a conversation is super important. Yeah, it's that's one of the skills that I've been able to parlay into uh, my professional career as well. In that I want to under wanted to understand the context for why people not only why they were doing the things that they were doing, but uh, people's people's questions like what somebody says, hey, what's up with polygamy? That's like the the tip of the tip of the spear sure. of the actual question, right? That's the part that they're brave enough to ask. And a good salesperson or a good missionary isn't going to bristle at that first question, right? A good missionary or a good salesperson will dig deeper, right? And instead of trying to answer, like you never answer the question outright. Doesn't matter what how easy a question is, don't answer it outright. Yeah. You want to understand the context around why it's being asked. Yeah. Right? And then it's just a simple we I don't need do they even teach commitment pattern anymore? Yeah, it's not called that, but it's all part of the preach my gospel. Right. Kind of thing. It's so, rolled into different terminology and stuff, but the principles right. are still there. The principles are the same, right? It's, yeah. it's the what I'm understanding you say or ask is X, Y, Z. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I'm trying to think of like professionally how that works. And well, they so, seek like, right. first to understand, right? There, there that's that's kind of how Covey couched it. That's right. <laughs> Remember Tuller making quips about Covey and uh, he's all in the interest. Uh, the, have you done a Tuller voice? I haven't. This? Nobody knows no. the Tuller voice. Pretty much anytime I tell a Tuller story, I got to do a Tuller <laughs> voice. So he'd be all, yeah, I think it was in a zone conference. He'd all, he said that very thing. He goes, isn't it interesting? Elders said, yeah, brother, brother Covey came up with all this stuff after he was a mission president. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> but I'd read that book, uh, all the Covey stuff yeah. uh, before my mission. I was like, zing. That's great. <laughs> um, but no, for me, like professionally now, I do software development for people, like custom software builds and system. Essentially, if you're a business owner and you want to streamline your process, whatever your process is, then you'll come and work with me and before I ever do anything or build anything in a software, I have to get really clear on the questions that I'm answering. Right. You have to know their processes as they are now, too. That's right. That's right. And so I always couch it when I go into these conversations. I'm like, look, you're going to ask questions of them that they're not going to know the answer to. That's going to make them feel dumb. Right? Yeah. And as, as soon as they feel dumb they're going to put up resistance, whether conscientious resistance or subconscious resistance. And so I always try and be self-abasing from the jump so that I look like the idiot, so that they feel comfortable to look like an idiot as well. Well, they should be the specialist of their own business, like a yeah, missionary right. should be the specialist of the gospel they're out there that's to right. preach. So like, whenever I'm working as a, as a consultant in my business, I'll be like, yeah, and now when we get into this thing, Nick, uh, we're gonna be I'm gonna be asking you a lot of really dumb questions. Like you're gonna think, what does this guy got rocks in his head? Why is he even <laughs> asking that? And I'll tell him, I've I'll do this with you because if our foundation isn't correct, there are certain things that we all assume are happening, but it's those assumptions that are ultimately gonna get us into trouble. Right. And so from a missionary standpoint, when somebody asks something. You have to kind of give them an answer 
but then dig for the context a little bit more. Yeah. Right. Like, Hey, what is up with this polygamy thing? It's a really good question. And why, why, why are you bringing it up? I know I had a lot of questions about it and you kind of just start peeling off the layers to get to the real concern. And I'm not really, it's been so long since I've had that kind of conversation. I don't know how to make myself look like an idiot other than just, <laughs> you know, being normal. Uh, don't so worry. They you, feel you, comfortable. You, you look like an idiot. Just, just know, assume you. it. Yeah. Yes. Just people just assume that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a safe assumption. Just write it um, on your forehead. and That's right. That'll yes. help. Use small words and speak very slowly. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, those skills, um, have been really, really powerful and not judging people for the questions that they're asking. Yeah, that's right? good. And yeah. So I know that we, uh, as we served uh, in various parts of the state and in various areas, we would always kind of touch back around transfer time and find out where, yeah. where people were going and some of the things that were happening. It came to a point, though, that we were to our last transfer, right? Yeah. We were six, six weeks left. I was in Port Sulphur, Louisiana with Kai Tanner mm, in my last six Kai weeks. Tanner. And uh, what about, where was your last area and what was that like your last six weeks, your last transfer of your mission? Well, I spent the last six, five, six months in the final area. And so. So you got to know the people pretty well. I would, yeah, ish. I, I think so. Um, as much as you can know somebody in six months. Yeah. Um, so, backstory everything has a backstory. Before my mission, I had actually gone to Louisiana on a road trip. My friend and I in high school, our senior year, had read Jack Kerouac on the road. And we're like, that's it. We are going on a road trip. And so <laughs> loaded up my, uh, our, my junky car and we drove across the country for two months, just staying with relatives, going wherever. And we're like, on a whim, we're like, let's swing by New Orleans. And so I went to New Orleans and I'm like, both of us fell in love with that town. Yeah, it's awesome. This place is legit. Yeah. And um, then fast forward, seven, eight months later, I get my mission call, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm like, oh, wow. I wonder if New Orleans is in that mission. And so I, when I first got to the mission, I was talking to President Tuller about that. And he's all, yeah, don't, don't you worry, Elder Hossman. We'll get you down there to New Orleans. You'll get to serve there. <laughs> and uh, it was like closing in. We had five or six months left. And a good friend of, have you had Jordan Leak on this yeah. No, not yet. I want Dude, to though. You got to get Jordan on here. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. A uh, friend of ours, rock solid. He was AP. Um, just, I, I can't say enough good things about Jordan Lee. And he was the AP at the time. And he's like, I got it hooked up. You're going to uh, St. Charles, so he hooked it up for me. Oh, I know nice. it was inspiration. I'm using my quotey fingers here. <laughs> it was inspiration. Thank you, Jordan Lee. And. Um, <laughs> So my last area was in downtown New Orleans, which meant we covered the French Quarter, all of the housing projects. This is all pre-Katrina, obviously. And so, and this is Garden we, District too, isn't it? No, part of the, the, the crappy part of okay. the Garden District. Um, <laughs> all right. But uh, Magnolia Projects, that's where Lil Wayne's from, was two blocks up the road from our apartment. Nice. Yeah. I, we literally heard gunshots every day in that area. Every day. I wa we rode through one. It was the uh, New Iberia Housing Projects, I think it is. There's Iberia, not New Iberia, just Iberia. And they're along the Mississippi. And they're no longer there. They all got torn down, thank you. Sure. But, um, one of the blessings of the hurricane. Yeah, exactly. We rolled through there in the morning, and we saw a car on fire 
in the uh, between buildings. Like, whoa, that's scary. Sheesh. We rolled back through there that afternoon. Car was still on fire. Nobody ever came to put it out. <laughs> oh, that is such a ghetto story, dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love no, it. And that's a, like, oh. I had, uh, I don't know if it's, I was satisfied with my work in all of the areas that I'd served in um, because I'd, I'd baptized in every area I was in. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. yeah except St. Charles. And, um, it wasn't like I was captain baptizing, right? Like it was average, I guess. Baptismo. But, but captain baptismo. And uh, <laughs> that area presented its own unique set of challenges. Like oh, yeah. we were getting filled up. We were probably getting 20, 30 media referrals a week. And so we'd call these people, schedule a time to come deliver their Bible or their Book of Mormon or their whatever, hustle on out there, teach them a first discussion and set up, commit them to baptism. We always committed them to baptism on the first discussion. <laughs> and uh, you show up to teach the, the second discussion, and they're gone. Yeah. Never heard from them again. Um, that was tough. That was really tough. Um, a lot of rejection. A lot of rejection, which is great for a young man. You need the rejection. <laughs> you got to get rejected. And, um, but I think the thing that kept it okay was that um, we we're so busy. It, we're just constantly moving. No time to be kind of self-sad or anything like that. Just, no time, which yeah. I think like that's a huge principle for life, period. Just keep working. Just, just keep going. Like in my own business now, it's if I come in in the morning, I'm like, crap, I don't got nothing to do. <laughs> I just start doing anything. And it, um, inspiration, um the muse, whatever you want to call it, likes people who are in motion. I think the spirit likes people who are in motion as well. Yeah. And opportunity finds you when you're in motion, not when you're sitting there on your butt. And so there was a lot of that. Um, we did a lot of street contacting down along the uh, Mississippi River. The Riverwalk. The Riverwalk. And, um, dude, we had some... I don't even know if they're appropriate for LDS podcast stories that we had. Like <laughs> they had decadence weekend, which is essentially the gay pride weekend. And in new Orleans, if you weren't committing somebody to be baptized on the first discussion, then you got to the part of Joseph Smith in the first discussion. And if you're teaching a single male, you go, so, um, how does your church feel about homosexuality? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that was a two, three, four times a week conversation as well because yeah. of the, the gay community there in New Orleans. And we had one member in our entire area. And, but we did have a couple of members that lived outside of downtown that worked in downtown um, that were homosexual, which, you know, like I'm saying it like it's some big deal, right? Like it's not whatever. They always, took care of us. Uh, there's one guy there at the a restaurant in downtown. We had just happened into him. And he's like, hey, elders, come here. And we went over and talked to him. And he managed this restaurant. He walked us in. He introduced us to the gal behind the counter. And he said, look, whenever these guys come in, you give them whatever they want. And so we didn't eat. We didn't have members to feed us. But we had two different restaurants and Lark that would take care of us. Nice. You know, we, we would end up talking to uh, this one guy in particular, the, uh, ran this restaurant and he was a return missionary. He was, he had served back in the seventies, I think. And, um, 
he just told us probably the second or third time we met him. He's like, look guys, I'm not interested in becoming a member of the church again. That I'm homosexual and I have no desire to come back to the church. He's all, but I, I know what it's like to be on a mission. And so we would stop by a couple times a week and chat with him and talk to him and he'd take care of us. Nice. Yeah. And so that was, man, it was, you just so busy, just moving so quick. I, I got to be there on the, um, they opened the St. Charles branch building. Uh, yeah. If you go down on St. Charles there, it's a red brick building. I got to be there for the dedication and when we actually went through and, uh, met in it for the first time. So the first few months I was there, we met in a Jewish synagogue down by Tulane. And so since they weren't using it Saturday or Sundays, we, we used it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Very cool. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit, you know, we're Thanksgiving day, 1999. And, uh, I remember specifically mm. we were flying from Baton Rouge to mm-hmm. Dallas Fort Worth airport. And at the time, and it still is, but not nearly as robust as, as it is now, there was a train system that would yeah, take you to and from the different terminals. Well, everybody else in our group seemed like they were all going to a different terminal than I was. And because I was flying home to San Diego at that time, and everybody else was either going to Utah or Arizona, which was apparently a different, just a different place. But I remember as all of you guys got off that train to go to your thing, I was the only person left on the train. Not mm. the only missionary. The only person left on my little part of the little tram car. How stoked were you? It was surreal. Not, I don't know if stoked is the right word even, because it was like, oh my gosh, that's right. I'm alone now. Right. What was your first alone moment when you got home? It was At some point, I got on the airplane and came home alone between Houston and, and I guess it was Houston, right? I thought it was, it was Dallas. Dallas. Either way, uh, my story's breaking down. Um, (laughs) So I flew back to Phoenix by myself, and it was glorious. Like For me, um, I'm an introvert who's learned how to play really well or marginally well at being an extrovert, but it takes a lot of exertion mentally for me to be on. Okay. And and so um, I get a lot of energy, conversely, from being alone. I dig it. It's nice. I hadn't been alone for two years, man. Yeah, except for on the toilet. Well, even that, I don't know if it's technically alone. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> I'm talking alone. <laughs> and um, it was great. Yeah. It was great. And, and as soon as I got home, um, I, I got home, got released. It was obviously Thanksgiving Day. And then that night, I went and met up with a girl that had been riding me for my mission. Nice. Yeah, you got to get that done quick. <laughs> and um, it was cool just driving out on uh, an interstate without anybody else in the car. And I listened to music. Like, I think I was fairly obedient when it came to the whole no music thing, but it was just nice. It was nice being alone for once. Uh, I didn't find that particular transition weird at all. Really? It was welcome. Like it was a relief to finally just have a second. Yeah. When it came time to uh, when it came time to start dating, how mm. long did that go? How, how long till you went on your first date? Mm, a couple days. Was it that girl that you were writing? It was. Yeah, writing as in no intention of we're marrying each other. Writing. 
We were friends. But you still went on a date with her. Heck yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, so I was a ward mission leader here in my ward. So one of the things that um, I committed to myself when I came home from my mission was that as a kid, um, well, I moved around a lot. My dad was military. And once he got out of the military, we just kept moving. By the time I was 10, I think I'd lived in seven different houses. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot of moving. And so on my mission, I can't remember at what point it was, I had made the commitment to myself that mentally, this is how I framed it up, that I wanted to come home, stay in a ward. I didn't ever go to a singles ward. I do not care for singles ward in the slightest. I think it's a false reality. I didn't go to one either. And I'm sure people are like, oh, every time I bring that up, oh my gosh, singles wards. Like, yeah, <laughs> for me, it just didn't work. Like I want the, I wanted the ward experience from the elderly down to the youth. I wanted the disruptive sacrament meaning. I want reality. This is, this is truth. And I wanted to stay and build it up. So I moved into uh, downtown Mesa, and I've lived here and been attending the same ward for 19 years. Have you really? Yeah. I, I was there as a single adult, returned missionary, and I've been here raising three kids. Wow. Yeah. And so in that time, I don't know when it comes in for young men, but eventually that, that uh, black and white mentality of the church is 100% right. Everything you know that God foreordained that we should back each other out in our cars <laughs> and if you don't do this, then you're going to hell and you're less valid. <laughs> like you start realizing, oh, wow, no, that's probably just because of insurance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Satan doesn't actually control the water. He probably just doesn't want 19-year-olds hurting themselves. <laughs> um, it, that starts to break down, right? And you start recognizing the gray. And I've seen a lot of uh, our fellow missionaries and I've watched other people that have come, guys and gals, but more, more specifically the guys drift away from the church because they start recognizing there's two points, two points here. They start recognizing the gray and culturally, whether they've overtly been taught this or it's just kind of been part of the system that it is wrong to question. And if you question, then it's, you don't have a testimony. You're in the black now. You're in the black now. Right. Which is such an odd thing because our religion, our faith is based off of questioning. Right. And we taught Um, that to people. For and two we years, that to people, right? And so now, whether and this is why you got to feel put other people at ease with asking dumb questions. It's like there's part of our pride that says, "Well, I should know the answer to this." And instead of admitting that you don't know the answer, it's a lot easier to just say you're wrong. Um, the whole thing is wrong. It's, it's the whole thing is wrong. It just collapses. The cards that it we collapses. used to use to describe the twelve apostles and the foundation of the church, oh, and we pulled the car heavens, out. It's and- all gone. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I was really fortunate in that transitionary period to be surrounded by mentors who had been there before. Okay. And so around guys, and not that I ever got in, not that there's anything wrong with this. I'd never gotten to the point where I'm like, oh my gosh, the church isn't true. I'm going away. But you kind of just get tired of it on occasion. And having somebody there to just guide you through it and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there once. Yeah, totally normal. You start questioning things. Uh, the other thing that I think is mission critical for that transitionary phase is you have your your mentor, your guide, 
let's just stay focused on the guide thing for a second. Uh, the bishop that I had at the time had a firm belief in calling young people to positions of responsibility. Okay. So I was 24 when he called me to be a ward mission leader of a home ward. No, I was 25. And um, so at 25, newishly married, two years married, I got to be in a PEC. And I was in a PEC with really experienced men who knew what they were doing. And this is where I think we, we fail culturally return missionaries is they get home. You have had a tremendous level of responsibility. Like all baptisms go through you. Right. That's huge. Like in the eternal perspective of this, that's massive. Right. And then you get home and you're like, all right, I've done a lot. I've seen a lot. I've, I'm ready you want me to babysit your kids in nursery. Okay. And they go to nursery and they babysit everyone else's kids for the next four years. Yeah. I've seen that happen. And then, and then all of a sudden questions start the, the, as life, and because we're just human, those questions start creeping in. Nobody, it feels like nobody respects your experience or is even utilizing your strength and your energy. And it's really easy to get slighted, feel yeah. slighted. To feel unimportant. To feel unimportant. Everybody needs acknowledgement. And it's... Well, we butter missionaries up big time. Oh, I mean, huge. you're representatives of the Lord. And you, you are. are. And all that's... It's not that it's not true, but we don't often understand how that changes the mindset of, a, of an 18, 21-year-old, that kind of thing, to be pumped up so much and then to come home and watch other people's kids for a couple hours. Right. And, and the argument back is... Well, guys, we all got to watch, you know, we got to do, watch, there's an important calling. It's like, yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah, but you have to be sensitive to that transition and what it does to their mind. Exactly. And there is, this is one of the things I love about uh, fully functional ward, is it take, I had a lot of energy, let's call it, as a return missionary. And it's not that it was stamped out, but it was tempered. Okay. And it and it was guided by men with experience. Bridled. It was bridled. bridled. Yeah. And bridled almost bridled would be the wrong word for it because bridled is like a, an element of force and control. And if you want to okay. get sideways of a young man who's black and white, intimate any level of control over his life. Right? He's going to yeah. resist. But if you can channel that and utilize that experience and that willingness, you've got Man, we have to have that level of energy comboed with the experience of older men. Yeah. Right? Especially in the priesthood. Like, it's got to be, it can't just be either or. And I hate saying things like the following because it sounds like I'm talking crap, and I'm not. But I think oftentimes we fall into kind of a good old boy network in the church. Okay. You call the older men because you see them as reliable. And they probably are. You call them to positions of authority and responsibility. And you look at the younger men and you'll go, ah, he's too busy. You'll look at him and go, ah, he doesn't have the experience yet. Well, of course he doesn't have the experience. Nobody's going to give it to him, right? Yeah. And so it's really easy to feel impressed upon by the spirit that that kid should go babysit your kids because you don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah. And call it whatever you want, but there's an element of you just don't want to deal with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they come in with passion and energy and 
they're excited and um, young men will learn their own lessons. They'll learn it, right? But they won't learn it if we never give them an opportunity. And, and so for me, like when I was elders quorum president, we had, we have a lot of old folks homes in our ward. And there we have three of them that we rotate sacrament meeting in and out of every week. And the three guys that I called to head that up in my elders quorum were guys who had just returned home from their mission. Hmm. And guys, this needs to get done. This is pure religion to visit the, uh, the widow, to visit the fatherless, like organize it. And they did, they knocked it out of the park. They organized it. They ran with it and yeah, they're dating and yeah, they were going to school. They can do it. That's the benefit of youth. They have the energy to go and do like 20 things at a time. Yeah. You ask me to do that now at 40? Nah, -uh. maybe I can't. Maybe I could. But so mentoring young men, I I feel like I was extremely blessed in having a bishop and counselors around me who put responsibility on me, like genuine responsibility and trusted me, genuinely trusted me. Yeah. Uh, And so it becomes much easier to stay engaged in the church when you acknowledge people, when you give them that, not just faux responsibility, but real responsibility and they'll step into it. Yeah. And I, I just personally, I can think of off the top of my head, a number of guys that I look up to and people that I love who, well, they're not going to say, this is the reason I left the church. It certainly played a, it played a part in just feeling like they didn't matter. Yeah. You know, and it's engaging for me to engage with young men is mission critical and keeping them active and keeping them involved. Well, and that's kind of what President Hinckley talked about with making sure that everybody had a calling and a responsibility, or it was a responsibility, right? It wasn't, we say calling, but responsibilities in the church come a lot of different forms. So as far as, um, you know, what to kind of distill down what you're saying, it just sounds like they they need to make sure that they understand that they're still valuable and they're still important to the work and that they didn't lose out on anything because they went on a mission and they aren't being punished for being home. Right. And that it's, it's easy to say and give lip service to that stuff, right? There's so many different layers to how to minister to people when they come home and and to a certain extent, we have to be sensitive to each unique person. Like you sounded yeah. like you transitioned pretty well. There's a lot of people that don't transition that well. And and part of what you've probably seen is is people not transitioning well home from being on a mission. Why can slightly differ depending on who it is. Like in your case, you wanted the alone time. For me, I missed my friends. I wanted to go out and see my friends and and see them, hang out with them. It wasn't so much that I needed to go to a movie or listen to music or anything like that. That was fine and part of the experience yeah, good, but right? but I, I wanted to go back and see some of those people I hadn't seen in a long time and so there was everybody has something that they need to reconnect with and with you it was reconnecting with you yeah exclusively yeah, I, you look I'm my, I'm my biggest fan Nicoletti that's right <laughs> <laughs> well alright well we uh, we've been a couple of old mission buddies just reminiscing for, for about 45 minutes here so we probably ought to wrap it up and just uh, right. say thank you for, for coming on and uh, thank you for being a good post-mission friend for the last 19 years. No, thank you oh, for being a good post-mission being, friend. Look at you being all cheesy after school special. Yeah. 
I do appreciate it. It, uh, It's nice, in all honesty, to look back and say, I'm really glad that Nick's not crazy. (laughs) And you're (laughs) sure he's not? Yeah, I'm pretty darn. Pretty darn. (laughs) Well, I know we had a good time. You made my MTC experience uh, memorable in a great way. And so uh, thank you for that, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, buddy. So there you have it. Thanks again to Clint Hossman, my MTC companion and friend for these last 19, actually 21 years since we were in the MTC together, but 19 years since we came home from our missions. Such wonderful stories. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it got a little bit of uh, just some buddies talking about their mission, but uh, I hope you enjoyed some of the counsel that he had and some of the things that he shared that helped make him not only a successful missionary, but a good businessman and a successful entrepreneur after his mission. Want to make sure that you tune in coming into these December episodes. We're so excited to have Brad Wilcox come on to talk about his book to help us figure out a way to get more out of the holiday season. We also have nutritionist Zach Cordell from the Latter-day Saint Nutritionist podcast. He's going to come in and give us some advice on how to eat better going into this new year course, but specifically some advice for missionaries on how to eat well within the budget constraints and sometimes the regional constraints that we may find as missionaries serving throughout the world. But there's some great advice there for everyone. So please stay tuned to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. 